Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. standing by. Hey, Wacky Bruce. Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. It's been a crazy week for the NFL and for Buffalo Bills fans. We have training camps kicking off across the league. We have injuries. We have players going on the pup list. We have players holding out due to contracts. No matter what thing generates you to say, football's back, football's back. Football is back. And I have a good time on social media about all the things that could potentially generate you thinking football is back. You know, somebody talks about their favorite food, football is back. Someone holds out to it a contract, football is back, and so on and so forth. So today we're going to talk about water levels. We're going to talk about a lot of things, but we're going to start off the conversation in an aquatic way. Because Stefan Diggs was talking in his press conference and consistently referred to the discussion from the minicamp as being water under the bridge. First off, it's very important that you know that that is an idiom that originated in the early 1900s. The entire phrase means that water under a bridge, it never comes back. That's what the phrase is intending to mean. It's water under the bridge. It means that once it goes, it is forgotten and no longer considered relevant. That's what that means. When you say it's water on the bridge, it doesn't necessarily mean it's even like forgiven necessarily. Now, sometimes people use it that way. What it means is that we do not acknowledge it anymore because it's gone. Like a puff of smoke, essentially. Like a fart in a windstorm, potentially, the way you would use that idiom. The idea is that the water does not change directions is under the bridge, and then it continues on down the stream or river, and then it's gone. It does not turn around and come back to you, a.k.a. something you do not anticipate will return to you. Water under the bridge, gone and forgotten. So why do I even bring this up? Because it got me thinking about water levels, and it got me thinking about boating. When you're boating, one of the most important things that you can understand is what type of body of water am I on? Because the body of water that you're on and the water level of the body of water that you're on 
drastically changes the way in which you navigate your aquatic situation. They require different skill sets. See, higher water levels on the same body of water might mean faster currents. Lower levels might mean that there are hazards that are exposed now. Rocks, parts of the shore that perhaps were no longer hazardous when it was high water, now all of a sudden hazardous when it's low water. The type of boating and the type of things and the type of hazards you're looking out for when the water is high is not the same thing as the hazard you're looking for when the water is low. Sometimes you feel like you're drowning, and then other times you need to acknowledge that it's water under the bridge. The water's high, the water's low. And that's kind of the way this week has been for Buffalo Bills fans. One of the first major pieces of news that we got this week as Buffalo Bills fans was the Naheem Hines injury that had occurred, ironically enough, on an aquatic vehicle, a jet ski. And he had been hit while stationary and had suffered an ACL injury that was going to keep him out for 2023. And that's a pretty low watermark, all things considered. That's what we consider to be a bummer for Bills fans. There are two things that need to be addressed with Naheem Hines. The role as a running back and the role as a return man. If you do not think of both of them, then you might misread the method by which the Bills should handle it. If you think to yourself, hey, he wasn't going to make the team anyway because he's RB4 or RB3, then you're missing out on one half of what he does. We do this with special teams players sometimes. We look at the offensive or defensive depth chart and we say, gosh, he's, he's RB3. He's LB5. Yes, but he's ST1 or he's ST2. Special teams has its own separate depth chart that doesn't show up on ourlads.com. And it's really, really important that we constantly be thinking about this because you know the coaches are. With players like Saran Neal and Tyler Matakevich. These players, there's an entirely separate depth chart. It doesn't go offense, defense, specialists. When the Buffalo Bills are looking at their roster, that's not the way they look at it. That's the way we look at it. But there's a discrepancy between the way we look at it and the way they look at it. They see offense, defense, specialists, and teams. They see players like Gunner 1, Gunner 2, Kick Returner 1, Kick Returner 2, Punt Returner 1, Punt Returner 2. Who plays on multiple phases of special teams? Who's on our kickoff coverage unit? Who's on our punt coverage unit? Who's on our field goal unit? Who's on our punt unit? You don't see that, but they do. They keep that kind of depth chart. So if you're only looking at Naheem Hines as RB3, then you're not viewing it the way that the team is. And if that's the goal, if you want to put yourself in the team's shoes, then you need to think of it that way. It's not just RB3. It's RB3, which I will openly admit is not difficult to replace. You guys know about my discussions on running backs. RB3, not overly difficult to replace. Would you like to think he would have a more significant role this year than he did offensively last year? Sure. But even if he did, you're still splitting the work three or four potentially ways when it comes to players out of the backfield. Even if Hines was going to have a bigger role this year, he couldn't have had that big of a role 
this year. Because you're still splitting it three, maybe four, depending on Latavius Murray, if you keep five running backs at that point. Ways. But as a returner, that's a different solution than as a running back. My solutions are as follows. Running back, do nothing of consequence. And they did. They signed Darrington Evans. He can help give you kick return reps in the preseason. And he likely won't make the 53, but he can compete. Feels like he's good scheme fit. Good with it. As a returner, how do you feel about Hardy, Shakir, and Hyde? I don't love having Micah Hyde return punts. I'm completely fine having Micah Hyde field punts. Absolutely. Great ball skills. Great ball tracking. We see that with him all the time playing safety. The same traits that make him an elite ball defender also make him a good punt catcher. Wade Phillips would be very proud of his punt catching skills. So replacing Hines as a running back, do nothing of consequence. Hashtag team do nothing. And they did nothing of consequence. I'm good with it. It didn't mean the Bills have to, oh my gosh, now we got to sign Dalvin Cook. I made a comment on Twitter and I said, if you think that the loss of Naheem Hines means the Bills need to go out and sign Dalvin Cook, that's a little bit like looking for your screwdriver because you can't find your butter knife. Yeah, technically they're both shaped similarly. And if you really needed to, you could work on a Phillips head with a butter knife. There's a reason I use those two things. Technically, they look the same. Like they're both long and cylindrical. And if you really needed to, you could unscrew certain types of screws with a butter knife. But that doesn't mean they're the same tool. And I was against the Buffalo Bills signing Dalvin Cook beginning of the time, and, and now I'm, I'm definitely against it. That didn't change. I know that kind of drumbeat picked up a little bit. Maybe this, the signing of Darrington Evans maybe slows the drumbeat a little bit. Maybe not. I'm not sure. But as a returner, it's all going to depend on how the way that the Buffalo Bills feel about Hardy, Shakir, and Hyde. And then that trickles into what kind of offensive role did you want to have for Shakir and Hardy? Because we know that Hyde has historically been a break glass in case of emergency punt returner. He's a, hey, we need to make sure this gets fielded accurately. We need to make sure this gets fielded without damaging anything. Let's just have the safety blanket, Micah Hyde, go back there and catch the punt. But Deontay Hardy and Khalil Shakir were and are competing for slot receiver reps. So if you wanted Deontay Hardy to be your starting slot receiver, do you want him to also be kick returner or punt returner one? The same question for Khalil Shakir, depending on how they felt about it. It's something that all of a sudden becomes very interesting because it doesn't just affect the return game. It also affects the slot receiver because your two main candidates for replacing Naheem Hines play the same position. That's what makes it interesting. I wrote an article for Buffalo Rumblings where I talked about the most interesting position battles. Now, all of a sudden, slot receiver becomes more interesting because it has trickled into that discussion through the loss of Naheem Hines. So that's something that I'm going to be looking at moving forward. Two things. Running back, do nothing of consequence. Got it. Returner, let's take a look at the way that that trickles into the slot receiver competition. We're going to take a quick break. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. 
As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. So the water level started off on a pretty low, pretty low level. And the things necessary to navigate low water levels, avoiding rocks, taking it slow, being methodical, is the same way you have to approach news like Naheem Hines. Don't freak out. Don't go fast. All the same stuff. The metaphor totally works. One of the things that was really nice to see and something I would consider to be a high watermark, a water level that is high, this week was the Stefan Diggs press conference on the first day of training camp. For those of you who have not listened to it, I imagine you have. If you're listening to my show, we've said this before. I've talked to you this before. If you listen to my show, you're a super fan, right? This is not like the first place anyone goes for their Bills discussion. This is usually a secondary or a tertiary option for people who are diehard fans who want to get a little bit different stuff and hear the same information spun a little differently, get some odd metaphors, some wacky sort of stuff. It's only once a week. You need more content than just once a week. So you're coming here. If you haven't listened to the show by some chance, that by the show I mean Stefan Diggs' press conference, go listen to his press conference because it's fantastic. But I loved the discussion that Stefan Diggs had, and I loved it Because essentially this conversation is now over. And if you remember the way that I discussed this back in minicamp, I said I was irritated because I don't want to talk about it anymore. I don't like talking about drama. And now I don't have to. So I am thrilled right now with the way that Diggs and McDermott and Brandon Bean and Josh Allen handled the Stefan Diggs questions day one. Absolutely thrilled. A plus from Bruce. Not that my grades really matter but A plus from Bruce because all I want to do is not have to talk about it 
And now I don't think I have to because they said water under the bridge done. Everybody pretty much agreed. Yeah, no, we're good. Everything's fine. There was no ambiguity. There was no issue. And I want to compare and contrast this situation with what is happening with the Baltimore Ravens right now. I know that I have repeatedly said the best thing you can possibly do to have perspective on your own team is to make sure you're following at least a bunch of other teams. But I want to explain to you what I mean by this. When Rashad Bateman, the wide receiver with the Baltimore Ravens, didn't show up for the first day and was put on the did not report list by the Ravens, John Harbaugh was asked about it and said, I talked to Rashad, he'll be here tomorrow. Yeah, we're, we're, we're good there. I'll talk to Rashad, we'll be here tomorrow. And that was basically it. There were some articles about it. Oh man, this kind of stinks he's not here. But it didn't garner nearly as much attention. Now part of that, again, again, in the interest of being intellectually honest, part of that's because Rashad Bateman's not Stephon Diggs. But remember, Bateman had some not great things to say on social media. He wasn't being cryptic earlier this offseason. He was being flat out inflammatory when he responded on Twitter to his own GM's comments about the wide receiver position in the Baltimore Ravens. So Bateman has done far more that is openly antagonistic than Stephon Diggs ever did. Stephon Diggs was cryptic and I was annoyed with him and I was very clear about that. But he wasn't openly antagonistic. Bateman was, and then he didn't show up and was put on the did not report list. But John Harbaugh said, I talked to him. It's fine. He'll be here tomorrow. And it didn't garner nearly as much trouble. And so on that aspect, that just goes back to showing the way that I don't think that McDermott handled it well in minicamp. But then today, when asked about J.K. Dobbins and his participation, John Harbaugh says that's, that's kind of a J.K. question. Like, you'd have to ask him. Which is the opposite of the way to handle that. That indicates that there is drama. You've now stoked the drama. And there is openly an issue there with J.K. Dobbins and the Ravens. So now we have mirror images. On one hand, Harbaugh and the Ravens handled Bateman not showing up better than Sean McDermott handled the initial not having digs on the first day of minicamp. But on the other hand, the Ravens handled the J.K. Dobbins question far worse. So it's really interesting because they had similar situations pop up in the sense of absences. But we can learn a lot about the way that your team handles it by watching the way other teams handle it. I would consider today's day, the first day of Bills camp, a high watermark for the Bills and Diggs drama because I truly believe that this is not going to be a discussion again for a meaningful amount of time. Now, obviously, you know, Bills lose. Diggs has a game. He's an emotional guy. He's going to throw his hands up in the air. I get that. But we can go for months with no sort of issue here. No sort of discussion. Diggs saying, I want to retire as a Bill. It's a family issue. You go to war with these guys. It's a family I absolutely had a discussion with the coach. It's water under the bridge. Could not have possibly handled that much better. If I was his PR consultant, if I was his publicist, I would say, 
Nailed it. Diggs absolutely nailed it. Thought Sean McDermott did great too. So if I'm going to sit there and criticize the way that McDermott and Diggs handled themselves on the first day of minicamp, which I did, then I need to make sure that I'm giving props now or else I'm not being intellectually honest. At that point, I'm just stoking the fire. And I don't do that. And we're not going to do that here. We will be intellectually honest. And they need to be praised for the way they handled it because it couldn't go bad. We just saw it with J.K. Dobbins and the Ravens. All of a sudden, all the Ravens fans are going, oh, you got to be kidding me. Oh, no. Oh, no. We got Bateman. Didn't report. Then we got, oh, his sigh of relief. He's going to report. Then he shows up. He's on pup. He had the foot injury. They gave him, gave him an injection. Now Dobbins is unhappy. Oh, no. They were all, all excited about Lamar Jackson signing an extension. Getting OBJ back. And they're like, oh, gosh, got to deal with this. Bills fans don't have to do that now. So I'm really happy about that. Really happy. A couple more things to touch on. Dorian Williams officially is going to start his NFL career playing Will. He's going to learn the Will position. Brandon Bean flat out said it. Because that's been kind of weird. On draft night, it was he was a Will, and then it was he was playing at the mic, and we're going to give him a shot, and then now it's a Will again. In my article for Buffalo Rumblings where I talked about the most interesting position battles, I said that you don't have five men competing for position. That's not a thing that happens. So in the first day or two, someone will get moved out. They'll get ruled out. And today it was Dorian Williams. He's not going to be competing for Mike, which of course brings back all the same comments and discussions that we talked about earlier this offseason during the draft about Dorian Williams. You drafted a third round pick that doesn't really have a path to the field. That's weird. You sign Matt Milano to an extension in an ideal world. Dorian Williams doesn't see the field. I don't know how I feel about that. I wasn't a huge Dorian Williams fan before, but now you've confirmed he's going to play Will. I, I don't think that's great asset allocation. I really don't. I want to talk about Kyrie Elam because he started with the second team in training camp. And I was working on an explain both sides piece for Gregory Rousseau. A couple weeks ago, we went through it. And then we kind of got interrupted by some other stuff. And I said, I'm going to come back to it. And I... I'm going to. I'm coming back to it. And I'm going to do the same thing for Kyrie Elam that I did for Gregory Rousseau. And I'm going to explain both sides. The first side is Kyrie Elam will not lock down the CB2 job for the Buffalo Bills. The second side is he will lock down CB2. So remember, here are the rules of the game. Both arguments are going to likely contain statements that are strongly worded because they are intrinsically slanted by their definition. I am, in essence, debating against myself. And meaningful delineations must be made between the two sides. I am not attempting to be fair and balanced with one argument. I'm going to be a little bit more extreme with two. And you can find the middle on your own. They need to sit on clearly opposite poles so we can draw a clear distinction between the two of them and the two established boundaries. Will Kyir Elam be the answer at CB2? First off, the argument against it. The Bills selected a long athletic cornerback in the first round of the NFL draft. The assumption by many at that time, myself included, is that the long-standing fan disappointment in the CB2 spot 
was at an end. The Levi Wallaces, the Dane Jacksons of the world, they represented perfectly passable, albeit limited, options on the outside opposite Tredavious White. But Elam represented a new style of player for CB2, much different than the Bills had had there before. An athletic, press man corner, who would allow the Bills to play different coverages with more ease and help elevate the pass defense. And then the Bills drafted Christian Benford two days later. Nobody thought much of it at first, aside from the idea that Benford was another in the Wallace and Jackson mold. He's a zone corner with below average change of direction skills to correlate to man coverage and average to below average speed and explosion. But this is where the first misconception occurred. Benford is a markedly superior athlete to both Jackson and Wallace. His late round status may have hidden this, but he is bigger and faster than both of his CB2 predecessors. He's got tons of ball production in college, 13 interceptions and 29 pass breakups in his career. And he was always a different threat stylistically to the job than either Jackson or Wallace. The reason we didn't think of it much is because late round picks, we don't anticipate being players for jobs like CB2. We did this with Stevie Johnson, drafting the seventh round, who was not thought as a serious competitor for the job that was meant to go to James Hardy, drafted in the second round. When 2022 started, it was Benford, not Elam, who was the opening snap starter at the second cornerback spot for the Buffalo Bills against the reigning Super Bowl champion Los Angeles Rams. Benford played 58% of the defensive snaps, and Elam played 45 Dane Jackson occupied the other cornerback spot because, of course, Tredavious White was hurt. They did this via rotation by drive. It went Bedford, Benford, Elam, Benford, Benford, Elam, Elam. And then on the last series, it was Elam, Benford, and then both. Bill's head coach, Sean McDermott, said that they would continue to evaluate the position and that matchups might play a role in determining what actions they would take moving forward. What they actually did moving forward was to continue to platoon Elam and Benford. Given the Bills' terrible injury luck in 2022, one might actually forget that Dane Jackson was taken off the field in an ambulance during Buffalo's 41-7 stomping of the Tennessee Titans on Monday Night Football in Week 2. Fortunately, he only missed one game and then returned to full-time duty Week 4 against the Ravens. You add to the confusion that Tredavious White didn't come back from his 2021 ACL tear until week 11 of 2022. And Benford himself suffered hand and oblique injuries that caused him to miss weeks four and five, along with the rest of the season starting in week 12. Which means if you're trying to isolate the weeks where Jackson, Elam, and Benford were all healthy to try and get an idea on on coaching decisions... It's going to be difficult because it's needed. You need that to show snaps that were divvied up due to coaching decision and not snaps that were divvied up due to injury. But week six through eight, again, showed an increasing defensive snap percentage for Benford, 39, 42, 62, when he came off his broken hand. Elam's defensive snap share during those times went in the opposite direction, 76, 58, 43. As Benford got better, he played more, 
as Benford got better, Elam played less. He was earning more and more and more, Benford was, at the cost of Elam. Dane Jackson was 80% plus every time. That usually indicates the coaches preferred Benford. And they were dialing him up while dialing Elam down. Elam also had a blip in the middle of the year where he returned from an ankle injury to play well against the Lions, did an entire film study on it, and then he was inactive without an injury designation the following week. Sean McDermott said the team was looking at newly acquired cornerback Xavier Rhodes when he was asked about it. When Elam returned to the mix week 14, Benford was already lost for the season. White was back. So Elam collected 47 48, 43 percentage of the snaps for the final weeks of the regular season. Dane Jackson remained ahead of him on the depth chart. So Elam went from CB3 to CB3. First, he was behind Jackson and Benford. Then he was behind White and Jackson. So we have a highly productive college player who's a better athlete than the previous two CB2s for the Bills, who is taking snaps away from a first-round rookie in both of their respective NFL first years. The organization may have drafted Elam in the first round, and fans may have thought that they were getting a CB2, but the usage indicates that Elam was competing with a seventh-round fellow rookie for the third outside cornerback position behind White and Jackson and was frequently shown less trust than even Benford for that position. When you appear to be the staff's fourth favorite option at outside cornerback, it's hard to project the jump to stable CB2 based on what you've seen. That's the argument. That based on what we've seen, you can't really look at Elam and go, yeah, for sure. He's going to lock this down. Now we're going to make the argument for. The argument for is this. Playoff snaps matter. The games are win or go home. And the Bills made the change during the playoffs to having Kyir Elam play 62 and 63% of the defensive snaps while playing 0% on special teams, which is of note. And a healthy Dane Jackson played 38 and 37% of the snaps against the Dolphins and Bengals. The coaching staff trusted Elam in the biggest games of the year. I understand that there's a huge stretch there, not huge, but meaningful stretch, where Benford was trusted more than Elam. But in the playoffs, Elam was trusted more than Jackson. And he delivered. His game against Miami was marked with huge moments. Fourth down pass defense that allowed the Bills to run out the clock against their division rival. Interception. But it wasn't just those splash plays. Here is Elam's game against the Dolphins. 34 coverage snaps, four targets, one completion allowed, two yards receiving allowed, five yards after the catch allowed. A stellar day on a day when stellar was required. And you might think that, well, that's, you know, it's one game. He played well against the Bengals, too, because not a lot of people did play well against the Bengals. Here's Kyir Elam against the Bengals. 22 coverage snaps, one target, one reception allowed, six yards allowed, one yard after catch allowed. Yes, 
the coaching staff clearly did not prefer Elam to Benford and Jackson early in the season. And not even at the end of the regular season. That's true. But the last Elam we saw was not only the most trusted version of Elam, it was the best version of Elam. This best version of Elam was also more impactful than the average level of play we had seen from Jackson and Benford. The coaching staff deciding to play him matters because the moment they decided to play him was when the stakes were the highest and he rewarded them for their faith. It would stand to reason that he could continue that trajectory into the CB2 spot in 2023 and that his level of play with more time on task would remain at the level hoped for when the team selected him after trading him up in the first round. It should be noted that Benford was activated on injured reserve on January 6th. So even if you'd like to make the argument that it would have been a minor stretch for him to play against the Dolphins, he was inactive in Elib's favor the following week against the Bengals. We'll never know how much of that decision was based on Benford's readiness, but the staff didn't rush Benford back and Elam gave them no reason to do so. In addition to Elam's playoff success, his natural gifts are clearly superior to the other competitors. As experiences gain, those natural athletic talents are more likely to show up as knowledge of the system increases and processing speed quickens. Elam was an early declare, raw press man cornerback coming out of Florida. Benford was an experienced senior with a lot of games under his belt when he was drafted. We have a tendency to correlate draft position and pro readiness, and that's not true. Draft capital correlates with the way that teams feel about what the player can become rather than what the player is currently. Draft capital is about what they can become, not what the player is. Josh Allen. Anthony Richardson. We think about this when it comes to some positions, but not when it comes to others. Elam had the highest athletic ceiling of any of the players who are competing for CB2. He was playing his best the last time we saw him. Mind you, that was also a level of play that would can be considered very good. Like if we got that Kyrie Elam from the playoffs every week, you'd be happy with that as a CB2. And the signs indicate that he may have earned the trust of the coaching staff based on the playing time in the playoffs. These decisions in any combination can easily make one believe that a solid CB2 projection isn't too difficult to make. So we made the argument against. We made the argument for. We talked about a lot of stuff. I tried to fit it all into 30 minutes. I went a little bit over. But you know what? Sometimes... That's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rock.